Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 29, Leviticus chapters 19 and 20. We began to touch on the subject of death and the afterlife at the end of last week's lesson. Now, because since about all the 4th century A.D., Christianity has worked kind of backwards by taking what was revealed in the New Testament and then trying to read it into the Old, we tend to read some of the Old Testament writings and say that the words they used were referring to heaven or hell as we think of it, even though the actual word wasn't even employed. And any good Jewish scholar can tell you that this just isn't the case. This is not what they were referring to. That what it says is what they meant. And that the concept, the concept of a man descending to heaven to be with God or descending to a place where the devil resided was simply not envisioned to the inspired writers of the Hebrew Bible. And certainly we see the concepts of death and the afterlife evolve as we progress through the Old Testament, but never will we find an explicit thought of a man dwelling in heaven in God's presence. That only comes in the New. And as scattered and uneven as, he, as, as the subject actually is, in the old, particularly in the Old Testament, in general, one can say that death revolved around Sheol. And from an Old Testament perspective, Sheol was not Hades or hell. But it certainly wasn't a very desirable place either. Even though it was inevitable for all men. Rather, it was the commonplace that every human could expect to visit eventually. The grave. Whether wicked or good, an Israelite or a heathen, Sheol was the end of physical existence. And for the most part, there was a very hazy, undefined sense of an afterlife in an underworld that was thought to exist. Now, undoubtedly, this was, for the Hebrews, a holdover from their four centuries in Egypt where there was a very highly evolved and practice doctrine of death and the underworld and spirits and even a kind of resurrection that was similar to but not identical to reincarnation. And the entire purpose, as a matter of fact, of those fabulous pyramids had to do with making the spirits of the departed kings or queens or aristocrats comfortable and safe in that afterlife. Now, ancestor worship played a significant role in in practically every known culture of the world in the Bible era. Ancestor worship, by the way, isn't necessarily like it sounds. It it didn't always involve worship, per se. Sometimes it just was an honoring of the spirits of the dead out of an obligation to do so because when you died, you wanted somebody to do that for you. And in other cases, there was a kind of worship in, in that it was thought that the dead person's spirit was perhaps in close contact with the god of the underworld. And maybe you could ask your ancestor's spirit to get the underworld god to do something for you. All right? and, and we know for sure that the ancient Hebrews incorporated ancestor worship in their death cult and their afterlife, afterlife beliefs. Okay. We, we find reference to it in many passages in the Bible, especially as it pertains to Jacob and to Joseph insisting that they be buried outside of Egypt with their ancestors so that they could commune with them in their afterlife. Yet by no means was the biblical literature on death and afterlife in the mold of Egyptian theology. Okay. Death was a negative for the Hebrews. Whatever vague sense of life after death that was contemplated was negative. Physical life was the best and highest form 
of existence that a human being could have, and death was just an unpleasant fact. And living a long life was the blessing. Going to an early grave was called being cut off. Okay, particularly if one was seen as either wicked or maybe having committed a very serious trespass against the Lord. Now, just as Sheol was the fulcrum of the Hebrews' thoughts on death, the term shades is the generic term for whatever form of existence, if any, that a human assumed upon his death. In general, though, the most pleasant prospect of death that was out there was to sleep with one's ancestors. And that's a phrase, by the way, that's hotly debated. The accepted accepted thought is, is that whatever happens in the grave, to sleep with one's ancestors meant that one was in a peaceful state as opposed to being in a state of perpetual, perpetual anxiety or torment. Now, in Jesus' day, not only had the idea of a place where the spirits of the dead existed come into vogue, spirits that were waiting for something, perhaps judgment, but the concept of bodily resurrection was the hot religious topic of the day when he was here. Some, like the Sadducees, said, No, to bodily resurrection, while others, like most sects of the Pharisees, said yes to the possibility of bodily resurrection. But even the concept of bodily resurrection for them wasn't what we typically now think of. It's not the mental picture that they had. That is, that our spirits are either in hell or with God, and then our physical bodies are resurrected and we go to a spiritual place, heaven, if we're believers, for further existence. It's not what they had in mind. Rather, for the Jews of Jesus' day, and for centuries before that, and in many cases it still remains so, resurrection of the dead was mainly a metaphor for the restoration of an apostate and subjugated Israel. It didn't mean to literally have a dead person come back to life in a better body. For some in that era, it meant that after Israel was purified and made clean by the Lord and then made the dominant nation on earth as God's kingdom, then perhaps those who died as righteous members of the great and perpetual kingdom of God were going to be brought back to life. An earthly, physical life in this restored and purified earthly kingdom of God, Israel. But certainly they never had at any point thought about ascending to heaven where God lived. Now the concept proposed by Yeshua and then expanded upon by Paul of believers living eternally in the presence of God in heaven in a higher spiritual plane was new. The Jews indeed believed in a world to come, Olam Haba, but generally it looked more in some ways like the current widely accepted Christian view of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ that takes place physically on earth. It looked more like that than the what we think of as heaven. And though different Jewish sects believe differently, the thought was that a new and golden age of Israel was at hand, the world to come, Olam Haba, in which Israel would be this preeminent world power. And Israel, governed by God, would finally take its rightful place as a godly kingdom governing the whole earth. The entire world, in essence, would convert to Judaism and follow the Torah perfectly and fully and live wonderful lives. That was the Jewish vision of it. But the thought that the spirit of man could live in God's heavenly dwelling place wasn't there until the advent of Jesus Christ. In fact, the idea that man whom at our best is so impure and unrighteous and sinful, 
that, that we could be allowed into God's heaven and into his very presence was anywhere from laughable to, to blasphemous in their minds. Utterly impossible. And of course, that concept was forthrightly rejected by the bulk of the most learned Jews. The least learned Jews, the peasants, the farmers, the tradesmen, now they were more open to this idea. Therefore, it was the common folk who came to Jesus and drove. In droves. And the highly educated, who for the most part, shunned him. Now, the bottom line as concerns our study of Leviticus is that this all revolved around this idea of necromancy, all right? Calling up dead spirits, dealing with ghosts. And it's whether ghosts existed or not, one was not to try to contact them. And most Israelites believed that ghosts existed. Nor was one to have anything to do with someone who did the contacting of the dead as a paying profession. My best take on this is that God was not saying that the spirits of dead people could actually be contacted. Rather, it was was an unclean and unholy thing to be dealing with such matters and only, only unholy people will even try it. The dead are dead. And death is an abomination to God. And the spirits of the dead certainly exist somewhere. But in the scriptures, it's only the heathen who try to consort with those spirits, a living being communing with a dead thing. But the attitude towards attempting to commune with spirits of the dead was considered akin to idol worship. First and foremost, they're not real. Idols, gods, these gods don't exist in the first place. The Bible will at times call them false gods. Low Elohim. No gods, non-gods. And really what the spirit mediums are sometimes consorting with or even worshipping are demons that lie. And they claim to be the spirit of some dead person. Because then they can influence a person, a live person. They can deceive that person at the behest of their boss, Satan. There is utterly no doubt that anyone can contact and consort with a demon. No doubt we can. And both the Old and New Testament gives us examples of this. If we seek to do it, we can do it. We can contact a demon. Remember that. Now, let's get back to Leviticus, back on track here at Leviticus 19 a little more. In verse 32, don't, don't go there right now, we'll finish up this chapter here quickly. In verse 32, God instructs that Israel should respect the elderly. And this is not ancestor worship. Okay. Nor does it mean that the oldest living member of the household is necessarily dominant and full authority. It means to honor the elderly by taking care of them and seeing to their needs because at this point in their life they're not physically able to take care of themselves. But it also means that the wisdom that the elderly have gained should be put to good use, appreciated, not ignored. Next we have another command that that won't have any meaning to the Israelites for about four decades. Don't wrong a stranger, a ger, G-E-R, that lives with you in your land, the land, of course, being the promised land, the land of Canaan. And, and, and this theme of a duty to treat foreigners fairly and to even allow those foreigners who wanted to give up their heathen gods and make the God of Israel their God as welcome members of the nation of Israel is repeated time after time and no doubt was the physical precursor the earthly and physical side of the reality of duality, to prepare for that day that Messiah Yeshua would come and offer Gentiles, foreigners, gear, strangers, okay, by means of faith in him to join Israel. More specifically, to join Israel in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. 
to join in the covenants made between God and Israel, to join in the heavenly ideal of Israel, a nation of people completely devoted to Jehovah. Thus we have Romans 11 and Paul explaining how Gentiles who have faith in Christ are grafted into Israel. In spiritual, not a physical sense, of course. Alongside Israel, not in place of Israel. And as the younger brother, not the elder. Now, not only that, but the reason Israel is to do this and have this attitude is yet another admonition by God to love him as you love yourself. And Israel should not have a hard time identifying with the foreigner who wants to be among them because as it says at the end of verse 34 of Leviticus 19 for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt yourselves. Part of the reason for the Egyptian experience was so Israel could learn valuable lessons and one of those valuable lessons was that foreigners are valuable in God's eyes and he loves them so you're to love them. And verse 35 and 36 tells the Israelites they're not to cheat one another. Nor are they to cheat foreigners in doing business. They're to use fair and just, dry and liquid measures. And the scale they use is to be accurate so that they don't cheat a customer. Again, as I mentioned, over time, more than once, it was and remains Middle Eastern culture to cheat, to bribe, to deceive, to do whatever it takes to win the business transaction. The best and most revered businessman among many of the Middle Eastern cultures are those who are the cleverest and can cheat the best. God's people are instead to emulate God. Always be fair and just. Well, this chapter ends with God's reminder to follow all of his laws and commands, not just the covenant ones, uh, rather the convenient ones. Now let's move on to chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. Now, chapter 20 continues God's lesson in holiness to the general population of Israel. And the thing for us to notice is that in the previous chapters, particularly 19 and then the one before it, God laid down this series of rules and ordinances that basically said, don't do this if the pagans do it. Instead, do that. Okay. Now, in chapter 20, Jehovah backs up and says, if you go and do any of these forbidden things that I've told you not to do, then this is what's going to happen to you. Okay. In other words, the penalty for violation of God's commands is the subject and point of Leviticus chapter 20. And just as in modern civil society, where we can determine the level of seriousness that a particular culture assigns to a particular moral failure, particular crime, by, need, by, by means of the nature and severity of the punishment that's needed out for it, so we can see in Leviticus 20 which crimes against God he sees as the most offensive to him according to the severity of the penalties that he prescribes for each one. And as we read chapter 20, the general structure is that we move from the most serious trespasses against God, which requires the violator to forfeit his life, to the level just under that in which the person is cut off by some means. Now, please keep in mind that every violation that's going to be listed in Leviticus 20 is very serious. Even sins of this slightly lower level of violations in which one is cut off are called aberrant to God. In modern day legal thought, every one of these crimes we'll encounter in chapter 20 would equate to a serious felony. Okay. The, 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 the issue that we're going to look at here is analogous to whether a crime rises to the level of a capital offense, a capital offense, or it's one in which you might only suffer life imprisonment, so to speak. But it's pretty serious either way. So let's read Leviticus chapter 20. 
Adonai said to Moshe, Say to the people of Israel, If someone from the people of Israel or one of the foreigners living in Israel sacrifices one of his children to Molech, he must be put to death. The people of the land are to stone him to death. I too will set myself against him and cut him off from his people because he has sacrificed his child to Molech, defiling my sanctuary, profaning my holy name. If the people of the land look the other way when that man sacrifices his child to Molech, and fails to put him to death, then I will set myself against him, his family, and everyone who follows him to go fornicating after Moloch and cut them off from their people. The person who turns to spirit mediums and sorcerers to go fornicating after them, I'll set myself against him and cut him off from his people. Therefore, consecrate yourselves. You people must be holy because I am Adonai your God. Observe my regulations. Obey them. I am Adonai who sets you apart to be holy. A person who curses his mother or father must be put to death. Having cursed his mother or father, his blood is on him. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, that is, with the wife of a fellow countryman, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The man who goes to bed with his father's wife has disgraced his father sexually, and both of them must be put to death. Their blood's on them. If a man goes to bed with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. They've committed a perversion. Their blood's on them. If a man goes to bed with a man, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood's on them. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it's depravity. They are to be put to death by fire. Both he and they so that they will not be de- there will not be depravity among you. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death, and you're also to kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal and has sexual relations with it, you're to kill the woman and the animal. Their blood's on them. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and has sexual relations with her, and she consents, it's a shameful thing. They're to be cut off publicly. He has had sexual relations with his sister and he'll bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. If a man goes to bed with a woman in her uh, menstrual period and has sexual relations with her, he he has exposed the source of her blood and she has exposed the source of her blood. Both of them will be cut off from their people. You're not to have sexual relations with your mother's sister or your father's sister. A person who does this has had sexual relations with a close relative. They'll bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. If a man goes to bed with his uncle's wife, he has disgraced his uncle sexually. They'll bear the consequences of their sin and die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is uncleanness. He has disgraced his brother sexually. They will be childless. You are to observe all my regulations and rulings and act on them, so that the land to which I'm bringing you won't vomit you out. Do not live by the regulations of the nation which I'm expelling ahead of you because they did all these things, which is why I detested them. But to you I said, you will inherit their land. I'll give it to you as a possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm Adonai, your God, who set you apart from the other peoples. Therefore, you're to distinguish between clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. Don't make yourself detestable with an animal, bird, or reptile that I've set apart for you to regard as unclean. Rather, you people are to be holy for me because I add and I am holy and I've set you apart from the other peoples so that you can belong to me. A man or a woman who is a spirit medium or a sorcerer must be put to death. They're to stone them to death. Their blood is on them. Now, I'm going to focus on some important principles brought up here in chapter 20 because we've already thoroughly studied the meaning of most of the sinful acts discussed in these verses. And I'm just liable tonight to be up on my soapbox a little more than normal because these principles are so visible in our modern lives. So, buckle up. You got it. Now, notice that between the end of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, we get a solid definition of just whom these laws are addressed to. And it's anyone 
from among the Israelites, including any stranger, any gare living among them. It's referring to any citizen of Israel, whether they're natural born or a foreigner who's given up their God in order to worship Jehovah and therefore has been formally joined to Israel. And it includes any gear even just living among Israel. A gear is a foreigner who has not joined himself to Israel, but he's living among Israel, uh, presumably for the benefits of such a relationship with them. And I point this out because so often it's said, well, the laws of the Old Testament are just for Israel. Mm. Meaning, of course, for those of Hebrew descent. And there's nothing of the Old Testament that would apply to a modern Christian, the modern Gentile. Those not born as Jew, uh, not born as Jews. Well, I hope by now I've demonstrated to you that nothing could be further from the truth. But also noting that just as it is not obedience to God's laws that brings us redemption, do you hear that? Obedience to God's laws does not bring us redemption. It wasn't like that for the Israelites either. It didn't bring them redemption. The law is about teaching us what holiness is and what it looks like. The purpose of the Torah is to show a redeemed person how to live a holy life, not to redeem an unredeemed person. That's not what it's for. And here we find that if someone wants to live among God's people without formally, formally being one of God's people, that is permissible, but they're going to be subject to the same rules and laws of Israelite society. And law number one is no idolatry. Specifically, in this chapter, it refers to no Molech worship. Molech worship was a particular concern to Jehovah because it was practiced by a large segment of the Canaanites, the current inhabitants of the Promised Land, and by some of the other cultures throughout the known world that the Israelites would encounter. And just as important, many people would come to the Promised Land who wanted to join Israel or to just stay with Israel for a while, usually for some economic reason, and they were worshippers of other gods. So it was necessary to lay out the law about this subject because God's laws were going to apply throughout God's land. Not a spot here and a spot there. This particular false god, Molech, was especially taboo because his chief attribute was that he demanded human blood for appeasement. Child sacrifice, actually. Now, just as we have already seen that the names of people in the Bible would vary from culture to culture. For instance, Nimrod was a Babylonian name. Asher is that same name, only in the Assyrian language. Okay? So it is we see that with Molech. We find a god with almost exactly the same attributes as Molech being worshipped among far-flung cultures, although by going by different names. And when we see that, we can be sure it's the same god that's being worshipped. For instance, Ashtaroth, Ishtar, Astarte, Esther are all the same goddess. The fertility goddess, just the language of the culture where she's worshipped is different. And by the way, this goddess's name was eventually, was eventually given an Anglo-Saxon name that's pretty much familiar with us. Easter. And yes, that's exactly where we got the name for the Christian holiday. Now, Molech was a high deity a chief god. He was an El. E-L. Because the world's people worshipped many gods, they developed a hierarchy of gods. Gods were put into a pecking order. With some gods subservient to or at least less powerful than other gods. And a, a fertility goddess, a god of the rains, a god of the underworld, a god of the, a god of the harvest. These were lesser gods. So invariably there was a chief god, the god above the other gods, who sat at the top of the hierarchy. And Molech, and his various names, was a chief god. In fact, this concept of one god preeminent over the others appears in Hebrew culture. The El, 
E-L, as in Elohim, or El Shaddai. Alright? The idea meaning the highest God, the chief God. Now, such a term has no meaning if there is no other gods to be compared to. What's a chief God if there's no other gods? And El is a language cognate of the Akkadian Il, I-L, which of course also means highest God. So when we see phrases in our Bibles, like Lord of Lords, God above all gods, and King of Kings, ascribed to Yehovah, even to Yeshua, these are just cultural language holdovers from the days of multiple God worship among the Israelites. Yes, in Hebrew and even among the nation of Israel, the thought of there being multiple gods was prevalent during the period of the entire Old Testament and on into the time of the New. Okay, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit more in a minute. In Moab, which bordered the Promised Land, the Moabites called Molech Shemosh. Okay, in Ammon, another bordering nation, the Ammonites called this same god Baal Peor. And he was also probably, most scholars think, known as Baal Zebub. Sound familiar? Okay. Later in Greek and Roman culture, Moloch would be called Mars and Saturn. Okay. Same God. Same attributes. Just different names for different societies and different languages. Now, we first heard Moloch's name in Leviticus 18, and now we find it again in Leviticus 20. But in one language or another, his name is going to be repeated often throughout the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Now, we're going to see several terms and phrases about just what it was that Molech wanted from his followers, especially as concerns their children. And we're going to see the terms handed over, devoted to, offer up to, terms like that, and a few others. And at one point it was thought that only one or two of those terms actually indicated the most extreme version of child involvement for Molech, which was the killing of a child and giving him or her to Molech as an appeasement. The idea being that the other forms of offering children to Molech simply meant that a child was dedicated to Molech. Right? Much in the same way that we have baby dedications to God in some churches today. That is, it was a rather benign, albeit heathen, event that meant that the parents would raise up a child to worship the god Molech. Now, general agreement now, though, is that all these terms are just various idioms that came over a long period of time for the same thing. The child was ritually executed. Okay. Sometimes the child would be a burnt offering. Perhaps even more often a child would be killed and buried in the foundation of a new building in order to dedicate that building to Molech. Or it would be a call for Molech's blessing upon that building or family or activity that took place there. Now, very sadly, Israel's history is replete with bowing down to this, to the false god of this horrendous cult. Okay. Israel at times merely accepted the worship of Molech by foreigners living among them, obviously for the sake of tolerance. But Israel also, at times, established the worship of Molech for themselves. Now turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. I'll show you something. First Kings chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. First Kings chapter 11, 1 through 8. King Shlomo, King Solomon, loved many foreign women besides the daughter of Pharaoh. There were women from the Moabi, the Moabites, Ammoni, Edomites, Sidoni, the Hittites, nations about which Adonai had said to the people of Israel, you're not to go among them or they among you, 
because they'll turn your hearts away towards their gods. But Solomon was deeply attached to them because of his love. He had 700 wives, all princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon became old, his wives turned his heart away towards other gods, so that he was not wholehearted with Adonai his God, as was David his father. For Shlomo followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidoni, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Thus Solomon did what was evil in Adonai's view and did not fully follow Adonai as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, Molech, the abomination of Moab on the hill on front of Jerusalem, another from Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. This is what he did for all of his foreign wives who then offered and sacrificed to their gods. See, King Solomon built high places, altars of sacrifice, to serve a whole litany of pagan gods, including Molech. And he was known in one country as Molech and a neighboring country by their language as Shemosh. And he participated in the worship of a long list of the most detestable false gods. He allowed his family and even encouraged the people of Israel to do the same thing. It's not that he necessarily believed in these gods, although it appears that he did, but at the very least he thought it politically advantageous to show that he was very understanding towards those in his kingdom who didn't believe as he believed. Not only that, he says, he did it in love. Ooh. That his motive was love. Now, does that shock you? Well, it ought to. I've had more than one angry person, believe me, come up to me after a Torah class and tell me I was so wrong in my teachings about the great King Solomon worshipping other gods. What a terrible thing for you to say. And how could a Bible hero who's credited with writing three inspired books of the Bible, one of which Proverbs is probably the most read of any of the Old Testament scriptures, at least by the church, how could such a man of God be accused of worshipping other gods? Well, here it is. Pretty straightforward, I'd say, in all of its ugly truth. Solomon, the builder of the temple, the first temple, worshipped Jehovah. He certainly did. But he also eventually honored other gods, too. We're told it was to satisfy his foreign wives. Just so you understand okay, the dynamic here. The reason Solomon married all those women was to create alliances, political alliances. That was the usual way an alliance with another nation was created in that era. Each wife, that's why they're called princesses, they were princesses of their own nation, okay, represented Solomon's alliance with another nation. Okay? Now, what makes this doubly troubling is, is that it wasn't as though Solomon began his life as a pagan and then we have this happy ending of his disavowing those heathen gods and worshipping finally the God of Israel. No, he was raised under the Levitical laws. He knew them well. Okay. The scriptures paint a picture of a man who lapsed in and out of his desire for these other gods. Undoubtedly, he worshipped Jehovah at the same time he was worshipping those false gods. There is no evidence that Solomon ever disavowed the Lord but he was thinking all the time that he was doing a good thing. He was doing a loving thing. That's what it means when it says he committed idolatry, this horrid idolatry, in love. He was deceiving himself. What he did, he was doing to please others. I mean, can you imagine in your minds an image of Solomon King Solomon worshipping those other gods, making a mockery of everything that Israel stood for, and how that must have hurt and angered and offended many citizens of Israel who had worked so diligently to stay true to Jehovah, the God of Israel. 
I mean, aren't you glad you wouldn't have to witness such a thing? Not so fast. Told you to buckle up. To my dying day, I will never forget the sickening picture of my president shortly after 911 standing in a mosque in a ceremony transmitted around the world declaring that Allah was good, that Allah was God, and Allah was the same as God as the Christians and Jews have. And that Islam is a valid and true religion. It's peaceful and it's to be favorably compared with the religion of the Bible. That's what he said. About 20 years after King Solomon did essentially the same thing, his country, Israel, fell into civil war and disintegrated and it didn't reappear again for 3,000 years. It's a long punishment. Now, I'm not in the business of making predictions, nor has the Lord seen fit to tell me anything of his plans right, beyond what he's written in the Holy Scriptures. But explain to me how it is that the elected leader of our nation who professes on the one hand that Yeshua is Lord can on the other say that a false God is also the Lord. And there be no reaction from God. Folks, we've all felt that we're on some kind of a slippery precipice. And, and, and I'm just not sure that there can be a much more serious offense against the Lord made on behalf of us as a nation than the one I just told you about. And one that I guarantee you most of us in this room witnessed. Okay. And to top it all off, this same leader is now using all his power to dislodge Israel from major portions of the promised land. Even from the Temple Mount. And he says he's doing it in love for the cause of world peace. Now, most of Christianity has just blown it all off as a political leader of a nation being political. And so it has nothing to do with anything more than that. That it's okay to call on the nation to join with pagans to worship their God if it's done in the name of peace and love. Well, it wasn't okay when Solomon did it. I don't think it's okay now. Now, how often have you, have I, done something in love that was completely against God's scriptures because it seemed so compassionate and merciful at the time? I mean, honestly believing that the law of love as you saw it overrode his commands and his ordinances. Even believing that Yeshua the author of the word, the Torah, has told us that we're to disregard every principle he laid down in the Torah in exchange if we're moving in whatever direction our hearts lead us. Big, big mistake. We're warned our hearts are deceitful beyond all our imaginings. But you know, it eventually got even worse for Israel. Because kings, Manasseh, and then Ammon, kings of Judah in the years that led up to the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. They instituted Molech worship under pain of death for any Israelite who refused to worship him. Even in Jesus' day, there was an altar in Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, that surrounds the eastern and southern edges of the holy city where Molech was openly worshipped and children were burned to death in his honor. I mean, is it any wonder that God made the promised land vomit Israel out of it on more than one occasion? Is it any wonder that Jehovah speaks so passionately against Molech and all his other names? I, mean, I took you on this detour because I wanted you to understand the unbelievable abomination that it is to tolerate other gods. And how cancerous that cult of Molech was and that Israel was infected by it to some degree or another at all times because they refused to take whatever action it was going to take to stamp it out. I also took you on this detour because this demonstrates how easy it is 
to sincerely believe that we're worshiping the one true God at the same moment we're utterly blind to the idolatry that's rampant in our lives because it serves, serves some kind of a useful purpose for us. How easy it is for the church of Jesus Christ to honestly believe that we are true only to him when it is so corrupted by the desire for power and position and money and doing anything, not to be ostracized by the world. That there's almost no limits as to how far we'll go to be inclusive in order to prosper and grow. This is why the word tolerant must be eradicated from our vocabulary. Harmony and unity at any price, tolerance and appeasement have been made into virtues in our day. They are not. They are cowardice, their rebellion and their sin against God. It's choosing to be against God. So let's be clear. Molech wasn't real. No matter how sincere and dedicated his believers were that they would take their toddlers and throw them into a burning fire okay, for the sake of the Molech cult. Molech was just man's evil inclination being easily led by that wicked pied piper, Satan. There is no Molech. Molech's really an ideal, an anti-ideal, a brainchild of mankind's fallen nature. And the ideal was that if the worshippers of Moloch sacrificed some of their children, just some of them, right, they'd receive the blessing of prosperity and well-being for the remainder of the family. Because that was almost always the point of making a child sacrifice to Moloch. Now you already know where I'm heading, I think. But what kind of a teacher would I be if I didn't tell you the truth? That abortion is but modern day child sacrifice. That's all it is. Why are the unborn sacrificed? Almost always it's our personal well-being and prosperity and comforts that are at stake. That's why we do it. The doctor says, maybe there's a defect. Better get rid of it. Prove very costly. It could be a real drag on your life. That little blue ring in the bottom of the test tube says that there's new life growing in the mother's womb. Ah, but that could be a burden. Really stretch out our finances. Better stop it now. The human secularist and environmentalist sees new life as an actual threat to our overpopulated, in their minds, planet. And so it's the kind and compassionate and loving thing for us who already are alive to get rid of it. This is the essence. It's the whole nature of Moloch worship. This is Moloch worship. We just give it a different name. And the penalty for worshiping Molech, as verse 2 of Leviticus 20 says, is death. Not the death of the innocent victim, our death. All those who would commit such an act and all those who stand around and tolerate it he says. That's not me. That's what he says. Now, verse 3 prescribes stoning as the means of execution for the person among Israel, stranger or citizen, who would dare to worship Moloch. Further, it says just who's going to do the executing. It's the Am Haaretz, the people of the land. Ordinary Israelite citizens. Now, this is not talking about vigilante justice. Okay. It's talking about duly appointed people designated for the task. But they weren't elders. They weren't tribal leaders. They weren't chieftains. They weren't priests. They weren't members of the court. They were the low-level leaders who had some kind of voice in ordinary community affairs. Why stoning? Why not shoot them full of arrows? Stab them with a knife. How about decapitating them? Why stoning? You know, it's hard to tell. Most scholarly thought is that these other methods typically required only one or two executioners. Stoning required many. The idea was of communal participation in that execution and thereby communal 
community acknowledgement of the wrongness of this crime that they didn't want it among them. So they were doing God's bidding and eradicating it. The idea was that it should not be quick and painless. It was supposed to hurt. It was supposed to be brutal and bloody. And from it, Israel should learn that even if their hearts wanted to follow Molech, they wouldn't do it for fear of the consequences. Well, then in verse 3, it lays down another principle. And it is that death can be, and, and penalty of death can be of a twofold nature. It can be a physical death and it can be a spiritual death. This is one of those verses that the English kind of misses the mark. Because it's explaining that even beyond this dual aspect of death, physical and spiritual, that, that there is also the matter that if the people will not do their duty and prosecute a Molech worshiper, the person still doesn't escape. God's going to cut him off in his way, in his time. Now, we've talked about cut off in Hebrew, karet, before. And as a reminder to you, it's a very complex term. And it means a whole range of things. From the possibility of dying short of a normal lifespan to being excommunicated from the nation of Israel and therefore from God. It could even mean a consequence that actually comes, comes in a later generation of that family. It could mean out-and-out execution by the local civil authority. It could mean immediate death directly at the hand of God, just like what happened to Nadab and Abihu, okay, the sons of the high priest Aaron that were burned up. But underlying all that is that karet, the penalty of being cut off, is divine retribution. It's from the Lord. It's not a result of a civil court action. We'll talk about this some more next week.